Amazon's Hitrix system company that obviously was going to do well during a shutdown. While still reassuring citizens that the U.S. was prepared. We have Americans across the country who have seen their 401ks plummet. Were you trading on inside information about what was coming? Folks, this woman is knee-deep in the swamp and she just got there. Don't y'all know how I love how they only use Fox News clips in that whole uh, commercial there? Way to go, Midas Touch. All right, y'all, as of today, there are at least 11.5 million cases of COVID-19 in the United States. At least 249,000 people have died as a result of the virus. Uh, 1,707 new COVID-19 deaths were reported yesterday. That's the highest daily death toll since May. Medical leaders are urging Trump to share data with President-elect Joe Biden. But that hasn't happened yet. In fact, they're not going to do it. That's how callous and despicable they are. Now, Pfizer and Moderna both have vaccines that have, they, they say have reached highly effective levels. And Johnson Johnson expects to have one soon. The Secretary of Health said today he expects a COVID vaccine will be available by the end of December. By the end of December, we expect to have about 40 million doses of these two vaccines available for distribution pending FDA authorization, enough to vaccinate about 20 million of our most vulnerable Americans. And production, of course, would continue to ramp up after that. We've paid for the vaccines. We've worked to ensure that administration costs will be covered by private insurers and the federal government through Medicare, Medicaid, and our program to cover COVID-19 costs for the uninsured. So no American will face an out-of-pocket cost for getting a COVID-19 vaccine. Now, until then, states across the country are doing what they can to crack down on the spread of the virus. Today, New York City, which has the nation's largest public school system, announced it will close schools starting tomorrow. Take a look at what Mayor Bill de Blasio said about that. No one is happy about this decision. We all, in fact, are feeling very sad about this decision because so much good work has been put into keeping the schools open, opening them up to begin with. Let's start there, opening the schools when almost no other major school system in America opened, making them so safe. But we set a very clear standard, and we need to stick to that standard. And I want to emphasize to parents, to educators, to staff, to kids, that we intend to come back and come back as quickly as possible. Things got a little feisty at the news conference with the New York Governor Andrew Cuomo when a reporter specifically asked him about those school closings. The red zone in Brooklyn and Queens, and we close the schools? Don't you remember that? Okay, so don't you, so what are you talking about? How, what are you talking about? You're now going to override. We did it already. That's the law. An orange zone and a red zone. Follow the facts. I'm still confused. Well, then you're confused. I'm confused. And then I'll tell you what you mean. Parents are still confused as well. The schools oh, they're not confused. Tomorrow. You're confused. No, I think but parents are confused as well. Read the law and you won't be confused. The schools are open by state law. Well, I don't really care what you think. Uh, of course, you agree with him because you're in the same business with him. The schools by state law. Well, what is the answer to your question? Well, joining me now is Dr. Tyson Bale, critical care and infectious 
disease specialist at the University of Virginia. Dr. Bill Lord, I, this is, look, it's frustrating. It's frustrating for so many different people. Parents are, are, are going, look, our school's going to be open. They're going to be closed. Like, we have to do distance learning. It's, it's all kind of stuff. And, but the thing here that, 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 that I keep looking at, that I keep trying to explain to people as well, is we're talking about folks who are still dying. And we're talking about, I mean, look, I, I've, I've been reading some of these threads and listening to these nurses and doctors who are quitting the business because they said, I've never seen this much death in a short period of time in my career. Uh, you're exactly right. Uh, we have over 1,500 people who died recently from COVID-19 in one day. And at the rate that we're seeing now with over 150,000 cases per day, uh, we can expect that number to go up to over 3,000 per day. Um, it's an absolutely monumental amount of people that are suffering. And, and to be honest, I, I did not think that we would see numbers like this. Um, you know, it's, uh, it reflects the approach that the administration has taken to the vaccine or the, the COVID-19 uh, virus, coronavirus, that there's going to be hands off and focusing on developing and therapeutics, but ignoring the public health measures that keep people safe in the meantime. So there is good news on the vaccine front, uh, but we're in the midst of a crisis right now that's really exploding out of control. And, and that's really, uh, you know, again, the deal here. I, I saw this uh, tweet earlier where the uh, governor of Alabama, she goes, I'm not shutting everything down. We're not going on lockdown. And, and you know what? Here's the thing. The reality is we don't have to go on lockdown if people take the appropriate steps. If you wash your hands, have your hand sanitizer, wear your mask, do social distancing, then we can actually have businesses that are open. We can still go about, but you simply cannot. You can't say, I want to do whatever the hell I want to do, but also stay open. <laughs> right. What's interesting is that the people and the leaders that have been resistant to these measures approach it as if it's one or nothing or all or nothing, that you either have to lock the entire economy down or you have to be completely restrictive and, and no mask wearing, no social distancing or whatsoever. The real strategy to keeping the economy open, to keeping kids in school, which you see is so contentious right now, is to marry these with the public health measures, uh, like you just said. And if we can do that, then we can actually avoid these prescriptive uh, lockdowns that we're seeing. But if cases are gonna keep going up like this, we have no choice but to do uh, the strict lockdown. Um, the, the, the fight between public health and the, the economy doesn't have to be in opposition to each other as long as you understand that, you know, with one, you have the other. And it, it's really frustrating to see that our leaders are either really falling on one side or the other here. So um, we look at these numbers. Now we have the Biden team complaining that the Trump folks uh, are not offering them any support at all uh, and making it much more difficult. We now also have the latest when it comes to of these companies with regards to a vaccine. One says 95% uh, effective, very little side effects as well. So, so again, they're saying, fine, they'll be ready by December. But the bigger problem is then going to be, how do we get folk to actually take it? Speak to that. What do you think has to happen uh, in order for us to say, yes, it's safe, it's real? I think people in the community that folks trust need to get out in front and advocate for vaccinating our community. 
Um, I can speak personally for myself in seeing uh, the process and the science that's gone into the vaccine development. I've not personally seen anything that makes me um, hesitant to take the vaccine. And I, I do take direct care of COVID-19 patients, and I will be in kind of that first priority for getting the vaccine. Based on what I've seen so far, I have no reservation being first in the line. Uh, but, you know, the point here is that the administration has lost complete uh, credibility when it comes to communicating information about what people should do around the vaccine, particularly when it comes to the black community, because we've seen um, how they've acted around this. Uh, but I want to separate that out from the actual approval process, which involves the FDA, the Vaccine and, Bi and Biological Related Products Advisory Committee, which are made of career scientists and respected authorities that are outside of the government and respected medical schools and healthcare institutions across America. They're the ones who ultimately make the recommendation for um, an EUA approval or not for the vaccine. So provided they see the data, they think it checks out, it's safe, it's effective, uh, then they make that recommendation and it's outside of the political pressure that the administration is putting on to speed this up. Um, so if we can get that message out and get trusted people in the community to disseminate it, um, then uh, then I think we have uh, a little a little way of uh, getting penetration the way that we need to in a community. Well, all right then. Well, and also, you know, one of the things that we'll be watching out for, the federal government is going to be spending a lot of money on messaging as well. We want to make sure that money goes to black media and they don't buy, bypass as well. So, uh, Dr. Tyson Bell, we sure appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me, Roland. All right. On that particular point there, Scott, I mean, this is going to be uh, a, a significant issue when I talk about coronavirus. we got to make sure that our people are indeed uh, being a part of that. We, you know, we know the games that they're going to play when it comes to uh, freezing us out. And the bottom line is there's going to be a major, I mean, millions of, millions, millions of dollars spent on messaging when it comes to this vaccine. And then last thing I want to see is, frankly, black media being ignored. But we also have to, this is where also black health experts are going to be so important in communicating to our people about this vaccine. It's going to be a massive effort. Uh, given our cultural uh, history with vaccines and the tests that have been done on black people historically uh, at, uh, at Tuskegee and uh, otherwise, uh, it's going to be a massive effort. We are a frontline group that needs it the most, along with the uh, police and healthcare workers, no doubt about it. But we've got two challenges. One, getting into our community building trust in that community to take it, and then being able to administer uh, a number of that 40 million doses we're supposed to have at the end of the year, getting it to people so that we can define some type of new normalcy. Uh, that's gonna take a lot of communication, a lot of marketing, and black leadership in those communities, not only taking it, but showing that it's safe and showing that it's necessary to move our community forward. And so it's a, it's a lot of work. Getting the vaccine uh, approved is one thing, distributing is another, and it's vitally important to beating this pathogen. Uh, we simply, I, we look, by, at the end of the day, no one trusts this administration, Robert. Don't care. They don't trust him. Uh, and, uh, and frankly, uh, thank goodness, uh, as these companies are talking about the vaccine, that we are moving away from these nuts in the White House. Uh, because, frankly, if Trump had won again, I don't know who in the hell would have taken that vaccine. Yeah, I think you're right because there isn't, there has been no trust built with the American people. You have to look, listen to some of the black health experts. People
people like Dr. Leon McDougall, the National Medical Association, Dr. Deborah Verholden, uh, Chief Epidemiologist at uh, Michigan State University, uh, and, and other individuals who are part in a part of the community. We also have to demand from the Biden administration that they put these individuals on that coronavirus task force. It's one thing to simply farm out these things to black institutions and black universities and black uh, healthcare experts. It's another thing to have them at the table. We know for a fact that our communities have been struck hardest by this virus, so we need to make sure that the people who are conducting these tests and these studies, the people who are uh, delivering the messaging, the people writing the policy, the folks distributing these dollars, that if you're going to be investing billions of dollars into virus, uh, not just the vaccine, but also the treatments, uh, the therapeutics, uh, and the, the development of PPE, and so on and so forth, make sure that money's going to HBCUs and to black contractors and black businesses. Uh, uh, there's no reason for us to just simply accept this as being an emergency and be happy for the emergency to be over. We need to be put in the exact same uh, position as everyone else if we're going to be expected to take the vaccine. And the best way to do that is have black people and black institutions as part of uh, developing and creating the uh, these vaccines and therapeutics. Um, Lauren, this is going to be, uh, I think, is going to be a clear battle. I think what the Biden people had better get used to, they better get used to the fact that they're going to have any corporation whatsoever. Uh, I think what they're going to do is they're going to wait to the last second. And I saw one story, in fact, I think CNN reported this, where when it came to the military, uh, they said the Trump folks want to start as many skirmishes as possible uh, to make it harder for the Biden people to do their job. I mean, the, 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 these people, I mean, just let's be real clear. Trump and his people, they will try to set everything on fire and then say, there you go. You put the fires out. That's what they're going to do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, we, of course, knew that some version of this was going to happen. I'm not too sure that we thought it was going to be this dangerous where he was going to withdraw troops from Afghanistan and, mm -hmm. and uh, literally, uh, you know, deliberately uh, try to undermine Joe Biden in that way using our military. But, but I guess, you know, we, we know Donald Trump is crazy. We understand that. Now, we know that in 63 days uh, everything is going to head in another direction. But, of course, we have to wait for him to get out of there. I mean, the man is dangerous. He's crazy. And, you know, you would think that some of these uh, Republicans sitting in there, particularly the ones who uh, say they care so much about the military, would have said something already with regard to the uh, the troop withdrawal in Afghanistan. But this is like a, a, such a dangerous, dangerous person. And we're sitting here at an extremely dangerous time that nobody says anything on the right, just nobody. So it's just left up to the loyal opposition of the Democratic Party fighting and, and you know, basically trying to message against Donald Trump. But it, it is really scary to sort of contemplate how many people say absolutely nothing, you know, just nothing about the fact that, you know, he's he's dangerous. And you're right, Roland, I can't, you know, there's nothing, there's really not much more we can say. We have to wait it out, unfortunately, until, until uh, 63 days from now. The fact that we've sat here for eight months and watched 250,000 people die and he's done absolutely nothing except go back and forth to the golf course, that right there has been crazy. But it continues. And I guess we shouldn't be surprised at this point. Well, so I think we, I think we, I think what we also have to do is, and Reverend William Barber spoke about this in his sermon on Sunday. And, and I get, I get the Biden people. I get them talking about not wanting to pursue investigations of Trump. I get them oh, talking get about that. unity. I get mm -hmm. them talking about turning the page. But I think what Reverend Barber said here is exactly what we should be saying and articulating. 
Press play, folks. There were some people praying for a political change in the presidency. And now that there is a change, have y'all heard them on the news? They are saying, we just need peace. We just need healing. We need to get back to normal. Really? We need to get back to when we all were just getting along. Now, when was that? <laughs> when? When really now? Really? Come on. When was it? That we were all just getting along. When did that ever happen in America? Then they say, well, we just need to get back to compromise and have peace. That's the conversation now, compromise. And this is how, why we can't heal. Because some want a false healing. That is the perception of peace. They want folk to get in the back rooms and slap backs and shake hands and agree to things that make them feel good but never addresses the needs of the people. And some things you can't compromise on. That's what got us in trouble in this country in the first place. We compromise with slavery. We compromise with the humanity of black people. And the church said it was okay. We cop too much of the church. We compromised saying women could, didn't have a right to vote. Y'all hear the number this week? They said the number now of the Mexican children that have been lost and can't be found is 666. 666 children lost, stolen from their parents. How do you compromise with that? How do you compromise with people who are more interested in putting one woman on the Supreme Court rather than keeping thousands out of caskets? If Democrats who now have the presidency and the House of Representatives, if they reveal that their primary goal is going to be compromised, they're going to lose the people that voted for them and they will never get them back. 55% of the people that voted for Democrats this time are poor and low wealth because they voted believing that somebody was going to fight for their lives. Robert, is he right? Correct. Uh, uh, what this usually ends up being is, uh, we saw this in Obama's first term, where he came in with a clear mandate from the people, it was hope and change, the fierce urgency of now, I'm going to heal this planet, and then he ran smack dab into Claire McCaskill and Joe Manchin and other uh, tester and other centrist Democrats, and that's how we ended up a watered-down Affordable Care Act that was doomed from the beginning, because there was never a public option included, there was never a single-payer option uh, as part of it, and we ended up with watered-down Democratic legislation, which was meant to keep seats like Arlen Specter uh, in their hands to make sure that you still have that uh, that uh, majority in the Senate and to maintain the House, which they still ended up losing during the Tea Party Revolution in 2012 and 20 uh, and 2014. So what you have to do, if there's anything that you learn from Trump and from Trumpism, it is that you dance with the one that brought you. You make sure that your base stays with you and you make sure you satisfy them and don't mollify the other side, but rather you put forth a bold agenda. I think there are a lot of black folks who voted for the first time in this election that we are not having a conversation about reparations this time in the spring they're going to be very disaffected that we're still not talking about real and true police reform uh, not simply oh the cops are going to beat you on Monday and Wednesday uh, uh, we're not talking about wholesale changing uh, uh, qualified immunity changing the ability to prosecute cops for the, uh, for the actions they take then you're going to have people who are, that you're going to lose for a generation if you look at that black voices for Trump generation those people who are out there with the MAGA hats on if you talk to them to a person 
those were Obama supporters in 2008, if they were old enough to be so. So the same people who voted for Obama, who volunteered, who knocked on doors in their first elections in college, were so disaffected by the lack of uh, what they saw as being big systemic changes taking place that they abandoned the party completely and started running around with MAGA hats on. That is what you <laughs> risk doing if you don't put forward a progressive and strong agenda for the people who brought you here, and people aren't going to stand for it this time. Yeah, but, but bro, Lauren, they cannot, they cannot play the go along and get along game. They, I mean, to to watch, to watch what's happening right here, to watch the absolute silence by Republicans, to watch them abdicate responsibility and let Trump do what he's doing right now, and they say nothing. No, hell no, I can't, I can't, I can't play with any of them. Right, that's right. And not only that, that was the same thing that happened. I, Robert, I thought you were going to say this. You know, when Obama got in there. Oh, you know, they were there was a push to to sort of go after Dick Cheney and Halliburton and, and all the contracts involving the war. And then, you know, Barack Obama decides to be a nice guy and not pursue any of that. That's nonsense. That is nonsense. I mean, the first order of business should be to go after anybody who was ripping off tax money during this administration, which is almost everybody in the Trump family. And if the Southern District of New York doesn't doesn't try to do it, DOJ sure as hell should try to do it. But the Democratic Party has a systemic problem, which I cannot figure out, of always wanting to be, you know, nice and oh, let's just get over it. That's all nonsense. These people need to get they they need to get some very negative reinforcement after this four years we just had. Because quite frankly, Trump Trump snuck in as it was. All right, he lost by three million votes uh, against Hillary. He had no he had no mandate. Then he gets in here. He breaks every law in the world. Nobody does anything about it. And then when the Democrats do get control and power, they decide, oh, you know what? No big deal. We they cannot do that. They absolutely cannot do that. I know they will do it. Whether the Senate is whatever the Senate's going to be. They're going to play this game of kumbaya. It is a huge mistake when you do not give negative reinforcement to your political uh, enemies, quite frankly. And the world is enemy of Donald Trump. You you cannot compromise or cut deals with political gangsters until you fix the damage. Yes. Right. Until you fix the damage done by the enablers for Donald Trump. Let me say it again. You cannot cut deals with political gangsterism. Democrats always want to win the argument, but not the vote, right? Now, the damage done to this country, we can compromise after you fix the Supreme Court and those three seats you stole. We can compromise after you fix this economy and stop people dying from COVID. And remember, I'm talking about the enablers, because we knew what Donald Trump was going to be, but the enablers allowed him and empowered him to do the damage. We can't compromise until you find the parents of those 666 kids who came across the southern border. You can't compromise until you fix the damage done in our foreign policy positions and give confidence to those at NATO and our allies. There is no compromise until you fix that damage. And then lastly, remember Bush too? He handed Barack Obama a mess of an economy, and the Republicans criticized him for not fixing it fast enough. And now Trump is going to give Biden and Harris the worst economy, COVID, loss of jobs, no schools. We can't compromise until we fix that. 
and they'll criticize us for not cleaning up their mess. So Reverend Barber is completely right. And black people, lastly, when they go to inauguration, they better leave inauguration and keep Biden Harris accountable and demand that they keep the Republicans accountable. There's no choice in it, Rowan. Uh, well, bottom line is you got to be willing to fight. All right, folks, speaking of fighting, uh, the highest-ranking black executive at Nielsen uh, is actually suing them uh, right now for race discrimination. That is, Nielsen Holdings over the years has reported on the spending power of African Americans. This week, a uh, lawsuit was filed by Cheryl Grace, Nielsen's senior vice president of U.S. Strategic Community Alliances and Consumer Engagement. The lawsuit was filed against the 97-year-old global ratings firm in the Illinois federal courtroom. Grace, who has been with Nielsen for 16 years is, and is one of its few black executives or executives of color, said internal conversations and written correspondences about race and career advancement with several of the company's top executives, including its CEO, have led to her being marginalized and subjected to a hostile work environment. Joining me now is her attorney, uh, Linda Friedman. Linda, welcome to Roller Martin Unfiltered. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right, so first and foremost, um, the basis of her lawsuit. Um, that is, uh, were disparaging comments made about her, or did, did uh, CEO and other executives simply say uh, she couldn't cut it uh, as an exec? Really, what's the basis of this suit? No, there's never been any allegation that Cheryl Grace has done anything other than an extraordinary job uh, for Nielsen. Uh, the lawsuit involves allegations of a glass ceiling and a pattern and practice of looking to the outside to bring in uh, talent rather than uh, promoting uh, from inside the corporation uh, to the position of executive uh, vice president. Uh, and so uh, th th these correspondences, uh, was it her uh, stating that she she wanted uh, further advancement, uh, wanted higher uh, job, job titles and responsibilities and were simply rebuffed? Yes. Um, in the course of employment, uh, there's often opportunities for employees to express interest in advancement uh, through their performance reviews and through conversations with management. Uh, Cheryl also took it a step further by uh, putting together a written proposal for a job uh, opportunity and eventually even wrote to the CEO of Nielsen expressing her interest in advancement uh, and inclusion in the executive rank. Um, talk about um, uh, that even, even further, because again, when you talk about the, uh, you talk about Nielsen, I mean, Cheryl, first of all, was the one uh, who was uh, over uh, and really was a public face and can, can, to my understanding, concede this black consumer report, which actually has now opened the door uh, for Nielsen doing reports on other individuals. Oh, uh, I'm sorry, other groups. That's correct. Cheryl has been a uh, vocal supporter of Nielsen and done extraordinary work in repairing uh, Nielsen's reputation and contributing to public affairs, uh, consumer outreach campaigns, and has been a celebrated member of uh, the team, uh, just not sufficient to be awarded and recognized for her talent and promoted to executive vice, vice president, unfortunately. Um, uh, the video that we're showing right here is actually a video uh, two years ago when Cheryl was on my show um, talking about that Nielsen report uh, of black consumers uh, from consumers to creators. Um, what uh, are y'all seeking in this lawsuit? 
Cheryl filed the lawsuit, you know, really on behalf of people who can't file the lawsuit. And she's taken the extraordinarily courageous step of bringing a lawsuit as a current employee. Uh, and what she hopes for is reform and change. She started the process by writing a letter uh, to the CEO and asking to open up a dialogue. Uh, during this uh, time in our history, uh, many of the CEOs in corporate America have been reaching out to employees and holding town halls or inviting people to walk through what they refer to as an open door. In Cheryl's case, uh, she accepted the invitation and she hoped to begin a dialogue about how Nielsen could be more inclusive at the top ranks and how other people could be given opportunities. Uh, instead of uh, inviting her to have this discussion, the CEO actually did what many uh, companies do, which is to flip the letter to the human resources and legal department. And then from that point on, Cheryl has never had another conversation with the CEO. But what she really sought to do was to provide for advancement opportunities for others who didn't have the ability uh, uh, and um, the opportunity to speak out. Um, it's been an extraordinarily, extraordinarily courageous act uh, in the middle of a pandemic for a person who has been highly successful to put it all on the line uh, in the hope that we could have reform and change. All right, Linda Friedman, the attorney for Cheryl Grace. Uh, we certainly appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm going to go to uh, my panel here, uh, Scott Boldu. Uh, actually, I'll go to Robert. Robert, we've seen um, more and more of these lawsuits. That was an executive uh, who worked for a Wall Street firm, a black woman, uh, who uh, Marilyn Booker, who filed her lawsuit as well. I mean, you know, what we are seeing are black executives who before would be scared to death. The fact that, as Linda said, as Cheryl Grace has filed this lawsuit while still working at Nielsen, says a whole lot, Robert Patillo. Well, you're, you're absolutely correct. One of my certification in law school was in the labor and employment law, and part of what employers attempt to do in situations like this, it make you make employees feel as if they should be happy to have the job they have in the first place, particularly in executive leadership, uh, as if you are blessed and they'll use the coronavirus or use unemployment or use whatever it takes uh, to dampen that. I think it's very courageous to launch this sort of suit, and I hope that it gives other people the, uh, uh, the energy and the belief that they can do the same. And let's understand we do need to start looking into the past and practices at many of these media organizations because what you see on television is directly attributable to those ratings. So the reason that you see very little black news on television is because the Nielsen ratings say that that's not what, uh, not what, not as not what sells, and therefore no advertising dollars go into that, and therefore the, the networks do not put that on television. If we want to change the uh, the depiction of African Americans on television, it will come directly through the ratings and having an African American in a position of power to make those decisions, to uh, fact check, and to ensure that we're being properly represented has a direct impact on the images that go into our television screen. So we all need to make sure that within our own corporations and jobs that we are doing our best to also root out systemic racism and oppression and glass ceilings as they exist and to um, to root out and make sure we're creating a system by which everyone feels that they have an equal opportunity to prosper and to create the American meritocracy that we're all led to believe exists. Um, this is, uh, again, uh, Lauren, this is the story I was referencing. This is the other story. Go to my iPad, folks. Um, Marilyn Booker, this is from the New York Times. She spent 16 years at Morgan's, as Morgan Stanley's diversity chief. Now she's suing. Marilyn Booker says she was fired in December after she tried to persuade executives to eliminate barriers to success for black financial advisors. I mean, I mean this is the thing uh, that, again, we are we're seeing, and, and frankly, uh, more black executives. At the end of the day... 
You know what? If if if, if folks like that, like 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 Cheryl Grace, don't don't hold these companies accountable. If you're an African American who's in a lower position, they're not going to listen to you. Yeah, that's true. I, I could I'd imagine that you could probably file a t this type of lawsuit at almost any media company, any place, uh, not just financial companies or Nielsen. I mean, just any media company. And because all anyone would, of course, have to do is go through the hiring numbers for the last 10 to 15 years. And what they're likely to find is not too many African-Americans at the top ranks of the company. There are certain media companies, uh, many media companies that still have never had an African-American person uh, in charge in a position where they are deciding the content of what ends up on the air, which is the real power at these companies. There's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, a lot of games that get played in terms of hires to make it look as if there's diversity. And what you find that is that the lower ranks, particularly in media companies, you will see uh, African-Americans get hired. So that, frankly, so I think I think they do it so that they can stave off a lawsuit. But what you don't find is that the, the upper ranks of the uh, decision making process is um, is always the same, you know, all the time. And there's certain companies, certain certainly several I've worked at that were, uh, they were actually getting, in, in two cases, there were lawsuits when I was there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they, what they'll do is they'll hire a few people and then they'll just go back to what, what they were doing. But, you know, public embarrassment and lawsuits is really, to me, the only way to go because it never seems to happen with any internal discussion. A lot of these media companies, particularly right now, because we talk about race all the time. I mean, race is in the media all the time. And it's always amazing to me given the history of this country, given the 400-year history of this country, given what we discuss all the time, that media companies never seem to think that it might be a good idea to have some African-Americans around at the editorial board meeting uh, and making some of the decisions with regard to what ends up, you know, as content for that media organization. But it happens all the time, all the time. All right, folks, got to go to a break. We come back, we're going to give you an update on cases dealing with uh, Derek Chauvin uh, out of Minneapolis, as well as Artiana Jefferson out of Fort Worth, and the case of the young black man who was found murdered in Louisiana. All that is next on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Well, you know, it's very difficult to really educate uh, the public on, you know, how Congress really works and how legislation is developed. You will see a piece of legislation with a couple of names on it as co-authors, but that legislation has gone through a process where there may be 50 or 60 amendments on it. And when it comes across you and your committee and you have some ideas about how you can make that legislation better, how you can keep it from being harmful uh, to the people you represent, you put together that amendment and you fight hard to get that amendment inside that bill. And oftentimes you do. Raphael Warnack grew up in a house full of brothers and sisters. His parents taught him the value of hard work, like me. Like me, he was first in his family to graduate from college and went on to earn a PhD. He thinks insurance companies should not be allowed to discriminate against people with pre-existing conditions, like me. Like me, Reverend Warnock knows that both parties in Washington could use some moral leadership. I'm Raphael Warnock, and I approve this message because it's time we had a senator who put Georgians first, like me. I'm John Ossoff, and too many are struggling to afford prescriptions. One change in the law would make a huge difference. See, Medicare is America's biggest buyer of prescriptions, but the drug companies bought off Congress, and they made it illegal for Medicare to negotiate lower prices. 
It's straight up corruption. Fighting corruption is my job. I approve this message because I'm not taking donations from corporate PACs. And I won't let the drug companies rip us off anymore. When you have the platform in entertainment, I do believe it's important to use it because the same people that will buy the movie ticket or stream the album or go and support the book, they're the same people. They're voting for what they want to see in entertainment. And now to me, it's about using the platform and say, hey, it's not just about an entertainment vote. It's about a vote that actually is going to affect the very trajectory of your life.